can't believe this is happening to me. I'm too young to have a kid. Too young to be a mother. And the baby I'm having, this isn't Joseph, my fiance's child. An angel came and saw me, told me he had a message. I was scared to death. He said that my baby was the son of God. My baby? But I'm nobody. I'm just a girl. I know what people were thinking when they looked at me. But the truth is, this is a miracle. And now we're here, in Bethlehem. It wasn't supposed to be like this. I don't have anyone here. No friends, no family. We don't even have a place to sleep tonight. And all of a sudden, the baby starts kicking. What happened? What went wrong? I thought this was God's plan. Would he really use me? In this place, in this time, to bring his savior onto us. Christmas. I, uh, I love uh, this time of year. I am one of those nostalgic and uh, sentimental guys, as you know. And uh, this time of year, the movies on, on TV, I love. Uh, I love finding time to, to sit and watch. And it, quite honestly, watching Christmas movies is one of my favorite things. In my mind, the best part uh, of the season. I love family, and I love them coming over, and I love relatives, and I love all of that. But, and I love the food. Uh, uh, of the season and uh, the presents and the parades and all of that. I, I, I love all that. But I love just finding time just to sit down in, in a chair and watch some of these movies that we watched uh, as kids and uh, over the years. And uh, you know the classics of Wonderful Life and Miracle on 34th Street. Elf is becoming, you know, a classic in our home. And uh, uh, the Rocky Marathon is starting. And uh, I don't know if you, yesterday we watched Rocky Three in my house, uh, me and my boys and Limley, and we're introducing her. Uh, and she was laying on my lap saying, Daddy, I don't like this one. And uh, I said, it's okay, honey. She said, no, I am scared. And uh, she said, that chocolate one is scary. And it's Mr. T, you know. And I said, yeah, something genetically wrong with him. And... Uh, you know, and, and she kept pulling the cover up over her eyes, and she said, Daddy, I want to go to bed. And, uh, and so I uh, took her up and put her to bed and came back and finished it. And we own, you know, the movie, but we watch it on TV when it comes on TV and put up with all the commercials. I don't understand uh, why we do that. But Christmas Story, in my opinion, one of the best, right? We can all quote a bunch of uh, lines out of that movie. You know, you're going to shoot your eye out, and uh, it just brings back memories. I remember my first BB gun. And I can, my mom thought she would keep us safe by rationing BBs out to us. And, uh, and so I can remember uh, getting knives out, out of the kitchen to pry BBs out of wood and fence boards, you know, so that we could reuse the BBs, which was completely, we could have cut our finger off, you know, trying to salvage a BB, but she was keeping us safe. And uh, TBS plays that movie Christmas Story over and over and over on Christmas Day. Can't get enough of it. Just you, you watch a little, you go eat a little turkey, you come back, watch a little, go eat a little turkey, come back, because they play it back to back to back to back. Last night they were playing Rocky Three back to back, and, and the boy, Meredith, came in the house, and she had been gone to get Catherine from somewhere and, and said, uh, Boys, it's time to go to bed. Alex, how come you don't have them in bed? And I said, Well, Rocky's on. And, and, uh, and 
She said, well, it's forever long. And I said, no, no, this is the last fight. And, and so I went and put the, best, the, kid, the boys to bed after uh, the movie ended and came back and turned the TV on, and, and he was about to fight the first fight again uh, on the movie. And, and Mary said, I told you it wasn't over. I said, honey, they play it back to back. This is a new version. She said, no, it's the same one. It's just a long, stupid movie. And... and but, but that one scene, you know, in Christmas Story, I wait for it every when, when the kid comes down the stairs in the pink bunny outfit, and, and I just feel for, for that child. And here's the thing about all of these movies that we watch over and over and over again, especially at Christmas time. I tried to introduce my kids last night to the Rudolph, uh, Rudolph the Red-Nosed Reindeer. You remember that? How bad were the graphics, you know, when, when we were kids? And, and uh, we were, I was trying to get them to show, you know, with the narrator, the snowman narrator and the Bonneville snowman and all that. And my kids were like, this is stupid. And, and uh, I was like, no, this is classic. And they're like, that's just awful. It looks like a flannel graph to, you know, to the, to the next generation. What was cutting edge for us, Texas Instruments calculator, what is, is so stupid today uh, to these kids. But here's the thing. When you watch these shows over and over, no matter how many times you watch them, we always sit down and, and we watch them again. And, and the danger is that they will get old. And the danger is that it will become outdated. And the danger is that it won't be as good as we remember. And, and the same thing is true every year. If your family is like my family, or you were raised in church, like maybe I was raised in church from 15 on, that, that we get to Luke 2 at Christmas, and, and the danger is it's outdated. And the danger is that story is familiar. And the danger is it gets old and, and that uh, we're not interested anymore. And so what I want to do this Christmas season, I want to do something a little bit different. I want us to look at a familiar story at, through the eyes of some of the characters and through the eyes of some of the people that were there firsthand and experienced this story firsthand. firsthand. And, and maybe a fresh approach of perspective on this story. We're going to look at a few of the main characters and we're going to dig into their stories. And today, I want us to look at, at the person of Mary and we're going to uncover some truths about God. I think maybe that we're there all along, uh, but to do that, we have to answer the question about who are each of these characters. And today, we're going to look at Mary. Turn in your Bible to Luke chapter 1. Mary is probably the second most important character in uh, the story of Christmas. A lot of debate, a lot of a study, a lot of emotion put into the person of Mary, and we're not going to all of that this morning, okay? That's not, that's not where we're going with this. There, this is not a sermon about why some faiths revere her and, and some faiths worship her and, and, and others don't. It, it's about what really happened to a real girl in a real predicament on a real day, on a real planet, real life. And we have to answer the question as we look at this, who, who is Mary? Look at verse 26 in uh, Luke chapter 1. In the sixth month of Elizabeth's pregnancy, that's her aunt, God sent the angel Gabriel to Nazareth, a village in Galilee, to a virgin named Mary. And if you, you throw up my iPad there, I, I want you to take some notes and let's just look and examine this text together. The, the first thing I want you to see about Mary is that she was a virgin. And uh, that word virgin's been translated in some different ways by some different people. Uh, some of them trying to make the point that God can't do miracles. I just want to assure you that God can do miracles and does do miracles, and this was a miracle. Some of them translated in a different way uh, to make the point that Mary was sinless. I was just reading this last week in, in uh, Luke uh, verse 47, I think it is, where she went to see her aunt Elizabeth and, and Mary begins to cry out uh, to the Lord and worship the Lord. And one of the phrases she uses is, I, when I saw you in verse 47, 
or I saw the baby. I don't remember exactly the context I was reading this week, but bottom line is Mary said, I love my Redeemer, which is a great indication that she's a sinner, right? Because a sinless person doesn't need a Redeemer. And here Mary is saying, I love my Redeemer, the, the Lord who is my Redeemer. And, and the word virgin, uh, it, it's clear. It, it means virgin. And, and I don't have to translate that for you today. Uh, she could possibly, not possibly be pregnant. No way, no how. Strong's lexicon, uh, the Greek word there is uh, parthenon or parthenos, which appears 14 times in, in the Bible. All 14 times it's translated virgin. All 14 times it's talking about a man or a woman who had not had intercourse. And Mary was also very young. She 15 or younger. Uh, most scholars think younger uh, than 15 years old, and if you think through that, I mean, just think through somebody you know that's 15, and uh, you, you think about them having a baby, you know, and you think about the question, would you entrust them to raise your firstborn? And, and God did. Why, why did he do that? Look at, let's keep reading in the verse. She was engaged to be married to a man named Joseph, a descendant of King David. What I want you to write up there beside that is perfectly positioned. She was not only a virgin, but she was perfectly positioned. And, and we talk about Nazareth, and we talk about Bethlehem. Nazareth where she's from. Bethlehem is where they were going for the baby to be born. Some of the podunk places on the planet. It, it's like saying that the Savior was born in Coeta. Uh, and, and the question is, can anything good come out of Nazareth, right? Can anything good come out of... Co what, what, what is it about this passage of Scripture? And if you look at it, the, the, it is unbelievable that God would choose these places and tons of prophecies in the Old Testament about the Messiah, that he would be scorned, that he would be looked down upon, that he would never be the most popular, that he would be humble, that he would be a servant from a humble town and from a small town. And God wanted to remove all all doubt about his son. Not, not that he's getting a leg up here because of where he was born uh, or, or because of w the family that he was born up in or in. So Mary was perfectly positioned in that place for God to choose her and for God to use her. And in this Hicksville town, not only that, there's a man named Joseph in, in Nazareth who is a descendant of David. And if you look at the genealogies, we have two genealogies, one in Matthew and, and, and the other in the gospel. As you look at that, one is the bloodline of Joseph and one is the bloodline of Mary, both coming from the bloodline of King David, which is incredible and important. If, if you are Jewish, you understand the significance of that. And, and Mary is engaged to him, and God is saying, I don't need to use the biggest, the brightest, or the best. Because even from the smallest way out places, I can bring royalty into this place. From the most humble positions, God can elevate and create miracles. It was all about what God could do, not, not what we could do. Not what Mary could do and not what Joseph could do, but what God could do. The, the third thing I want you to see, and I guess we've lost uh, the, the iPad here on the screen, but the third thing that, that I want you to see is that Mary was favored. As you look at verse 28, it says, Gabriel appeared to her and said, Greetings, favored woman, the Lord is with you. Circle that word favored and, and, and write a number three out beside it. But I also want you to write the Greek word uh, Charis there, and, and it's K-A-R-I-S. It, it is the Greek word. It is the same. You probably heard it before. It's the same Greek word from where we get the word grace, that this is the grace of God. The favor upon her is the grace of God. The angel is telling Mary, God is giving you 
grace. In other words, it's not about Mary. It's not about how perfect she is or how sinless she is or how holy she is. It's not about her credentials. It's not about her pedigree. It's not about her abilities. This is about God. And it's about what God can do in this story. Grace means there's nothing we can do to accomplish this. It's all up to God. And the angel's words here are so incredibly true. The Lord is with you. What does it mean to be favored? It means the Lord is with you. If the Lord is with you, you are favored. If the Lord's not with you, you're not favored. Mary could never accomplish this task on her own. She needed the power of God. She needed the presence of God. She needed God in her life in order to do it. But just because the angel is telling her all this great news, that doesn't mean that she takes it very well. Let's look at her reaction, uh, and that, which is the fourth thing. Mary's confused. And as you circle that word confused and disturbed in, in the Bible there, the Greek there is the picture of being deeply troubled deeply, deeply troubled, perplexed, which is probably not the response that the angel was looking for. And and the question is, how many times have you felt like that you heard from God? And in the midst of hearing from God, you were confused. That's the picture, right, Uh, of this relationship that we have with with our maker, that that, uh, we read our Bible and and we feel like God is speaking something to us. And we may make notation of it in our Bible or or, or even in our journal, and we say, God, I believe that you're speaking to me, and you are saying da-da-da-da-da, and and we, we take this word from the Lord in our heart and we plant our lives upon it. But then you run into a roadblock. And all of a sudden you begin to ask yourself, does God really mean this? Did God really say that? Is, that? is that what he meant? Maybe he didn't mean that. Maybe it was something I said up here, which is not the intention of a communicator right of Scripture to, to confuse you. But sometimes God's words are strong and sometimes God's words are, are, are uh, tough. And we're left with a little bit of confusion. And Mary, what she needs in this moment is clarity. And she needs answers. God, what is it that you want from me? Look at verse 29. And Mary tried to think, what could the angel mean? And she's wrestling with this process and wrestling with this communication with with God the Father. And the big application there is this wrestling match that happens with the children of God and God. And I just want to say to you today, if you're in that wrestling match or you have been in that wrestling match, it's completely normal. In my community group last week, one of the families has got a family member who needs healing, physical healing. And there is no answer other than a major miracle from God. Medical science can do nothing about this physical need. And just listening to this sweet couple talk about, well, God, we know you're capable. And we're we're confident that you're capable to heal this family member. But are you willing? But God, will you do it? Would you intervene and would you heal? And I don't know if you will, just listening to her talk and to him talk. I I, I don't know if you will. And God, I want to be willing to accept it either way. But I'm afraid in saying, God, that I'll accept it either way, that that's diminishing my faith and so that I'm not praying for healing in complete faith. You understand? And and this this ping pong match that's going back and forth in the heart and in the soul. And and it's, God, I don't know. And and I want to accept it either way because I know you're sovereign and I trust in your sovereignty, God. And I know that you know all things and that you, you do all things good. And that you're capable of healing. And in my faith, I pray, would you heal? But, but in my doubt, I'm saying, I don't know if you will. And I don't know if that doubt is diminishing my faith that I'm praying for. And this, in, this just round-robin circular logic that we go through in, in this conversation with God, to which I would say, that is the journey. 
And my confession to you is when, when Meredith and I are in a struggle and we're trusting God for him, we're here, that's exactly the place that your pastor goes to of, God, what are you doing here? And I trust you and I want to trust you the way, but am I, is my faith not strong enough because I'm praying in that way? And this journey and this wrestling match that we go into, it is the journey. And the goal of it is to know God. That we would come out of this journey knowing him, not his will. That's a byproduct of knowing God. Not his ways, that's a byproduct of knowing God. But that we would literally know him. And the angel senses this in this conversation. Look at verse 30 and says, don't be afraid, Mary. You know why he told her not to be afraid? She was afraid. And he knew it. And said, don't be afraid. For you have found favor with God. There's that word favor again. You can circle it and draw a line to the the previous word favor because it's the same Greek word. The word is grace again. God's riches at Christ's expense. That's what grace is. Verse 31, you will conceive and give birth to a son and you will name him Jesus. You can write out beside the name Jesus there, God saves. That's what the name Jesus means. God saves. Yeshua. I was sent a video this week from some of our team in Egypt, thousands of Egyptians gathered together, singing praise to Yeshua, Yeshua, Yeshua. In the native Hebrew, go back and read that passage in Isaiah. And the promises that we're claiming that God would do. Go back and read Isaiah 19, and it says, and they will speak the heavenly language. Some say they'll speak Hebrew. It's literally what that translation is saying. And they're saying the name Yeshua. God saves is what that means. And the fact that his name is Jesus has complete relevance to our lives today, that God Almighty wants to save us. Look at verse 32. He will be very great, and he will be called the Son of the Most High. This is the Messiah coming. Everyone was waiting for him, and the Lord God will give the throne. He will give him the throne of his ancestor David, and he will reign over Israel forever. Say forever. And to his kingdom there will never be an end. And this is a big, big plan. It's huge. Everybody has been waiting for him. And now Mary realizes she's the one chosen to bring him into the world, that she's part of his plan. And what's her response? She's confused. And and she's disturbed. Why? There are lots of reasons to that probably. Because the will of God is is often perplexing. And often uh, it is this wrestling match of us trying to know him as a part of it. But part of it is probably because this big plan was God's plan. It wasn't her plan. And you can rest assured if, if you are marking down and you're trying to figure out how God will do it, he will probably do it different. And he's probably not going to do it in the way that you thought and the way that you mapped it out. And Mary's probably just like every other little girl that has ever lived. She's engaged, and I'm sure she's planning a huge wedding. And that is in females. It's just in them. Limley comes from a whole other culture and had nothing to call her own. And, and, and she's asking for, for Christmas Barbies, and she wants a girl one and a boy one. And I said, why do you want a boy one? She said, so they can kiss. 
And Mary is just like that. She's a little girl in the image of God, raised in the beauty of who God is, that image stamped upon her. And she's engaged, and I'm sure she's wanting this huge wedding, and, and she's got a notebook or, or a stone tablet that she's chiseling her plans in, right? And, and, and she's drawing her dress, and, and she, she's got the colors picked out and all of the vows that they would say. And this angel comes on the scene and says, hold the phone. God's got a completely different plan for you, and it's not going to look anything like your plans. And sometimes, you just need to write this down, sometimes our plans are not God's plans. And Mary's plans were good, and there's nothing wrong with wanting all of that, nothing wrong with the idea of a wedding, nothing wrong with a family and and the way that everybody else has it. But we're like that a lot of times, that we plan our lives in detail. And and, and I talk to college students or high school students regularly, and and, and they've got these plans laid out that I'm going to go to this college, and I'm going to study this degree, and I'm going to marry this person, and we're going to have, this person's going to have these requirements, I'll never forget going to Washita Baptist University in the early 90s, late 80s, early 90s, and, and this requirement that these Baptist boys had on, on that campus for their wife, that she would have blonde hair and that she would play the piano and that she would, you know, all of these just nonsense things that, that would be, you know, the wife of a preacher. I can remember falling in love with Meredith and saying, hey, I just want you to understand I'm called to ministry. And she said, Nope. And in that whole conversation of uh, breaking the mold and saying, this is not my plan. And the way that we detail this out, I'm going to have 2.5 kids, right? What does that mean? And that we'll have a dog and a cat, and to which I would say, nope. And all of these details and the way that we're trying to play this out and we're going to live in this city and I'm going to have this job and I'm going to drive that car. And and God encourages us to have a plan and and to strategize in life. But I think in all of that planning and all of that plotting and all of that strategy, do we ever forget to ask God? What do you want, God? King of kings, Lord, what what is it that you want in my life? And it's not that our plans are bad and God's plans are good. I, I, I think our plans are good, but God's plans are always better. They're always better. And his plan for you is good. And his plan for you is to prosper you, not to harm you. And his plan is always about redemption. The plan of God is always about redemption and and making something from nothing. That's always God's plan. He always signs his signature redemption. He always signs his signature salvation. And when we follow his plans, we succeed. Maybe not in the way that we thought we would, but when we follow the plans of God, we succeed. And and some of us have, have been flat out running from God's plan. And we've pulled a Jonah, and, and we're running from the place that we know that God's calling us to. And we, we, we do the Heisman. I guess the kid from Baylor won the Heisman. And we do the Heisman, and, and we, we turn our back on God, and we try to stiff-arm God, and we run from the very plan of God. I'm talking to my father-in-law this last week, and, and uh, last summer, he emailed me and said, Hey, I want to know about this clean slate thing that y'all are doing. He lives over in Arkansas. So I had our team send him all of the documents and all of the liability releases and all of the legal forms and all of the stuff that we do and all the plans that our team has created in the last X number of years for Clean Slate. And I said, why do you want all this? And he said, I, I just, God is just speaking to my heart. I'm supposed to help this lady in this house that I pass all the time. And uh, month after month after month has gone by. And the last two weeks he went to Sunday school, which I don't think he always goes to the Sunday school at their church, and, and he got up and he went, 
and I, I hear the story later from my mother-in-law. And she said he went class to class. And all these adult classes just basically saying, this house is my Nineveh. And I drive by it, and I've been running from it, and I'm supposed to go and do something. And I'm just asking you who will go with me. And uh, this week and next week, the, these men in Van Buren, Arkansas, are, are doing this clean slate. And he's saying, we've got to run to do what God's telling us to do. And, and, I, and hearing the conversation he's wrestling with, well, are we helping people that, you know, that are just going to tear it up again? Or is there somebody in that home that's a drug addict that's going to break the windows again if we put new windows in and all of that? All of the wrestling match that we do, right? All of the justifying in our mind, right? And and there are moments in in a day like yesterday and a day like today in Toys for Tots where you think, are we really changing the world by giving presents to all these? Yes, we are changing the world. Why? Because we are changing eternity for some people. And and here's what I believe is going to happen today. And I know there are people that take advantage of systems like that, but you know what Jesus said? Help the one who asks you. How do you know who to help and how do you know who not to help? Jesus said, help the one who asks for help. That's how you clarify it. And it's that simple. And you say, well, what if I'm helping the wrong? No, no. You help the one who asks is what Jesus said. And you leave it in his hands at that point. And here's what I believe is going to happen today, that that as a result of today and as a result of thousands of us serving all over this campus, as a result of yesterday and doing that party for all of those kids in the DHS system, which, by the way, was stinking awesome is that one day there will be hundreds of people who will run up to you in heaven and will say, I'm here because of you and because of those toys and because of the way you served on that. And I'm here because of you. That we would be greeted in heaven because of the way we used our earthly resources and the way we used our earthly uh, talents to bring people into the kingdom of God. And for sometimes we run from the plan of God. For some of you, you're running from the very first step in the plan of God, salvation. And you've been running and you feel like making that decision is like a stick up and that God's telling you to hold your hands up and that, you know, you're going to have to give everything up and you're not worried about the sin. You'll give the sin up. Well, maybe the sin, but I've got to turn my back on my sin. But you think God is going to put you in some sort of a mold and you're going to have to dress like Pat Robertson after that. And and that this is the way to which you just, you've totally missed the picture of who God is. And God's not asking you to give anything, but you're all. And when you give your all, he gives to you. He is always a giver. And he gives, 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 gives. And he died the sinner's death for you. And and his son was raised from the dead for you so that you could have resurrection. And you could have redemption. And you could have a new start. And you could have real life. And, and, And he's not talking about taking from you. He's talking about giving to you. His plan is always about redemption. And just because God's plan is God's plan and we're in on God's plan, it doesn't mean that it's always sunshine and, and, and rainbows. Which, by the way, in order for there to be a rainbow, there had to be a storm. And here's what I found out about God. Sometimes the storm that God let, lets me walk through blow me to the place of destiny. And as you ride the storm that's in your life, sometimes those storms blow you right into the very place that God wants you to be to accomplish everything that God wants you to accomplish. The will of God could be tough, there could be danger, there could be interruptions, and sometimes our plans are interrupted by God. And and sometimes God comes in like in Mary, she's got this plan, and he says, I'm throwing the brakes on this plan, and God throws a monkey wrench sometimes into our plans to get us back on track. I think God loves to throw monkey wrenches, quite honestly, into the plans of man in order to get us back on track. But sometimes our plans, let's just be honest, sometimes they're interrupted by sin, right? I mean, nobody plans to fail, 
Nobody makes that the goal of their life. I've never, you know, met with high school seniors and talked about their lives, and none of them say, hey, I just plan to just throw this thing in the trash. Nobody plans that. Nobody plans to get a divorce before they're married, right? It's not even on the table. Nobody says after divorce, that's exactly how I wanted this to play out, God. No, nobody does. That's just silly. But, but, but why do so many people get divorces? Why are we the highest in Oklahoma and Oklahoma is the highest in the nation in divorce? Well, why, why does that all play out like that? Let me be clear about this. God hates divorce. But you've got to hear me when I say to you, God does not hate the divorcee. God loves his people. And he, he hates divorce because of what it does to his people. And how people are left in the, the wake of that. But divorce is the result of sin, usually selfishness on one or both parts. In the way that this plan, but nobody plans for that, right? Nobody plans for that. No, no one plans for their family to be torn apart by drugs. Nobody plans for their family to be torn apart by alcohol. No one plans to be unfaithful to their spouse and sets that as the long-time goal of their life. All of those things are a result of sin. Nobody maps out jail time as a part of their plan for their life. And, you know, I would just like to spend this chapter of my life in prison. Nobody does that. It's a result of sin. And let me just say this. Sin is a weapon. And it is used by the enemy of God against the children of God. And broken families and broken ministries and broken lives are the shrapnel left over from the attack of an enemy. And the fault is for the children of God not being on guard against a real enemy who wants to take them out and wants to destroy them. And, and he wants to hurt you, and he wants to hurt you really, really, really bad. But not all interruptions are due to selfishness, and not all interruptions are due to sin. Sometimes it's just life. And when we follow God's plan, you, you don't expect life to get in the way. He's the author of life, right? And you, and you think, if I'm following the author of life, why would he allow life to get in my way? But he does. He does allow it. And no one plans to drop out of college. Life happens. No one plans to get laid off. Life happens. No one plans to file for bankruptcy. Life happens. No one plans to, to foreclose or to get cancer or to lose a child. But, but life happens. And the temptation is to think that when life happens and you're thrown a curve that you didn't do something wrong and that you failed. The temptation is to believe that God wasn't there. But the truth is, is that God's plans rarely go in a straight line, at least the way that we see uh, a straight line. And God sometimes takes you this way and that way, and sometimes the path takes you through the valley of the shadow of death. But in the midst of that valley, I, I will fear no evil. In the midst of that valley, I'm going to trust the Lord. And if you look at Mary and you fast forward in the story a bit to, to Luke chapter 2, she's brought into it now, or she's bought into it rather, and she's on board with the plan. Look at verse 38. Uh, Mary responded, I am the Lord's servant. May everything you've said about me come true. I would circle that phrase and write out beside it, confession. Because that is exactly what we need to confess to the Lord. That I am your servant and may everything you've said about me, God, come true in my life. And I confess the truth of God in my life. And I confess that I am the servant of the King Most High. And everything he said about my life may come true. And that is the confession I want to confess over my life. And so she's on board. And, and now we would expect everything to be hunky-dory for this, this woman and for this child, uh, Mary. This is God's son, right? God's got a personal stake in this thing. And, and, and as you look and you watch how this plays out, look at verse 2 the census is taken this pagan king calls for a census which causes this this boy or this man and this girl who are both descendants of the king david to have to go to bethlehem to where he is from to their hometown look at verse 4 of 
chapter 2. And because Joseph was a descendant of King David, he had to go to Bethlehem in Judea, David's ancient home. And he traveled there from the village of Nazareth in Galilee. He took with him Mary, his fiancée, who was now obviously pregnant. That phrase, obviously pregnant, is humorous to me. Because I've made that mistake before. And I would just say to you men, never, ever, never, never, never guess on that one. Even if they're obviously pregnant. One time I made the mistake, and they were obviously pregnant, just the baby was already born. That ain't a good mistake to make. And they left the church. And the distance between Nazareth and Bethlehem is about 80 miles. And it's an hour drive for, you know, for some of us it would be about 45-minute drive. But, but in those days, riding on a donkey, it's a four-day ride. And, and if you've ever been obviously pregnant, ladies, you, you wouldn't like to go on a four-day donkey ride. And that's not how you want to plan out. The, the, I mean, in, in, this, in that scenario, you're just asking the question, what could go wrong? Everything could go wrong, right? And Mary's far from home. There's no friends or family there. She's pregnant. She's very uncomfortable. She's alone and scared. And Joseph is there. Many scholars think Joseph is about 30. Some think he's older than that. But he's in no condition to help Mary with her pregnancy. And men, if you've had a child in the last 20 years, you were there, right? You were, you were in the room. You had the scrubs on and the mask on and the hairnet on. And, and you know, somebody's she's squeezing your hand and breaking your hand as the baby is coming. And, and, and those scrubs do weird things to men because they think, you know, that, well, if the baby's not here, I could deliver it. Which is a bad idea to have that concept in, in, in your mind and in your thought. You're there to video which is a little weird too, right? Nobody has ever said, Mom, could we watch my birth? <laughs> For my birthday party this year, could we throw it on the big screen and, and, and watch that play out? And just nobody's ever done that. And 20, 30, 50 years ago, it was different. It was more like the Flintstones, right? Remember Fred Flintstone? Wilma's going to give birth to Pebbles. They drive the, you know, or run the car up to the deal and, and, and go into the room. And, and he sits out in the waiting room and he's pacing back and forth. And, and then the door opens and you hear the baby crying. And, and the, the doctor says, it's a girl, right? And then he hands out cigars, which is the worst idea. I mean, nobody thought about there's oxygen running through the walls of a hospital. Let's just light fire. In here, and that's exactly what a newborn needs is secondhand smoke. <laughs> but that's how it played out less than a hundred years ago. And you could go back further into, you know, Laura Ingalls, you know, time. You remember how that played out, right? Michael Landon would leave and go to the barn and say, you know, there's probably going to be a fire in this episode. I just need to go get ready, and, and, and you take care. Uh, of the birth of the baby and, and you know and the baby comes along and and he had nothing to do with that all the way back to 2,000 years ago the man is nowhere on the scene but he's the only one with Mary and in that moment of the baby is coming the time has come the time has come and he's knocking on door after door could the, she's about to have the baby could we come in the door after door slammed in their face And probably some beggar sitting on the road under that shawl points with a gnarled finger coming out from under that blanket and saying, down the hill is a cave. 
where the shepherds keep their sheep, but they won't be there now. They're out in the hills. You could go. You, you, you don't want her to give birth out here in the street. He makes his way into that cave, dimly lit with soot all over the ceiling for fire after fire after fire, and dung mashed into the ground several layers deep from all of the animals that had been in there. It's time, Joseph. And can you imagine the discussion between the two of them? And her saying, Joseph, it's going to be okay. My mother gave me a bag with a sharp rock to cut the umbilical cord with. Some strips of linen. I need some water. And giving birth in, in that place to the king of kings. And the Bible's not clear as to whether or not Joseph helped her or she kicked Joseph out. As the culture said that she probably should have or would have. But he was the only one there. It's not Mary's plan and it's not Joseph's plan. It's not on anyone's radar. Mary is carrying the Savior of the world. Don't you think she's a little nervous that she wanted this birth to come off without a hitch? And you think about it, infant mortality at that time was 100 times higher than it is today. And don't you think God wants to make sure his son would be delivered in the best conditions with the best doctors and the best location and nurses and family and resources and all that would go with it, everything at his disposal? You would think God would have been there in that moment. But here they are on the side of a road somewhere in a strange town with no help and no place to stay. And she has to lay the baby in the hay in a food trough. The Son of God. And it sounds so crazy to think about it. Uh, the deck is stacked against them. And by all accounts, the train is off the rails. But it's exactly how God planned it. Not how we would plan it, but how God planned it. And it seems so impossible. It seems so crazy that it happened all of that way. Mary had to be thinking, I am a virgin. How could this even be? which is God's M.O. This is exactly how God works. He lets it get dark and gloomy and impossible, so there's no doubt that it's him. Grace operates only when there's no place for our own power. Grace comes to full light only when we have no option other than to depend on him and that we're the end of our rope altogether. And it's probably the most comfortable place for the believer to be where there's nothing else that we can do except for trust God. And Mary says it's impossible. The angel says, no, it's not. Look at verse 37 and, and, and verse 1. In fact, underline that phrase because I would say this is the end of the matter and this is the key verse in all of this chapter. Nothing is impossible with God. Underline it, star it, memorize it. Mary was too young. She had a cousin that was too old to be pregnant. Guess what? The cousin Elizabeth is pregnant with John the Baptist. And the angel saying it doesn't matter. Nothing is impossible with God. Nothing at all. It doesn't matter if you're too young or too old. Nothing impossible with God. It doesn't matter how much you have or how little you have. Nothing is impossible with God. It doesn't matter what your job is, your education is, your pedigree is. Nothing is impossible with God. And we all make these realistic evaluations of ourselves, don't we? And, and, and what are our skills and what are our talents and what are our limitations? But, but what I want you to understand, and by the way, I would say self-awareness has very little to do with success in life. In fact, I would say the people who think they're better than they are end up doing better than they could. But in those moments, as you look at it, what is it that God's calling us to do with my talents and my skills and my limitations? And it's usually unrealistic. 
what God wants to do in our lives and take us into the realm of miracles where people will be awed and only God can do it. Above our abilities, above our position, above our education, and above our standing. To do something that maybe we don't think we can do, the impossible. The angel said it, nothing is impossible with God. Why? Because he loves watching ordinary people do extraordinary things. That's what kind of God we serve. And, and, and so some of you, God showed up and he showed you a plan a long time ago in your life. And he showed you a destiny and, and nothing yet. And you're beginning to doubt. And you're hearing the ticking of the clock on the wall. And, and Mary delivered this baby, the son of God, the son of man, but then nothing. Maybe for days or for months or years or quite honestly for decades. Jesus was 30 years old when he started his ministry. And, and something had to hold her in day in and day out that gave her hope. We're reading the, the Gospel of Luke. And as you think through the Gospel of Luke, and in fact, just flip back to verse 3 of chapter 1. And let me just show you something. I, I pointed this out to you when we did the series Wired, and, and we talked about the spiritual gift and the spiritual bent of Luke. Look at what he says in verse 3. Having carefully investigated everything, That's who I want to be my doctor, right? He's a physician. Having carefully investigated everything, I studied it all. And he, he, he just saying to us, there are others who wrote stories about Jesus and the history of Jesus, and I just wanted you to have an accurate one. And so having carefully investigated all of it from the beginning, I also have decided to write a careful account for you. And so he's doing this investigation. And he's interviewing the eyewitnesses. And as this story plays out and you try to put a context into the New Testament and how, how did all of this happen, we know that uh, Luke is, is a Greek. He's from Antioch. He's not a Jew. We know that. And we know that he has a relationship with Paul. Uh, probably he was a convert of Paul. Maybe, maybe not. We don't know that for sure. But we know they were companions. And they were ministry partners. And they did that together. Acts 21 talks about Luke visiting the church in Jerusalem. And in that place, it talks about him having a relationship with James. Who is James? The brother of Jesus. Now, it would be inconceivable to think that Luke would be in Jerusalem, friends with James, the pastor of the church in Jerusalem, and not have been in Mary's home. And Luke is telling him, that, uh, telling all of us for centuries, I carefully investigated all of this. What I want you to hear is that the reason we go back to Luke every Christmas is because Luke is the one who sat down and had the fireside chat, the Barbara Walters interview with Mary. And this story is coming via Luke right out of the mouth of Mary. And I, I'm confident as Mary sat there with Luke, she said, Luke, you, you got to hear this story. And there were probably moments where he said, Mary, that's too much information. And, and I, you know, I, I don't know, I want to hear that. And as the story's playing, she said, no, 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 Luke, you got to hear this story. We took this baby to the temple as was custom, as was practiced, and we took him to Jerusalem, and as we're entering into the gates of the temple, on the men's side, maybe on the women, no, I think on the men's side, and, and there was this man standing there. His name was Simeon, and he was a prophet, and he was standing there, and he was looking at every baby that came in. Why? Because God had told him, you will see the baby before you die. You will not die before your eyes see the Son of God. And as he's pulling back blankets from everyone who's coming in to, to bring that baby into the dedication at the temple, he's looking, and on that day, he pulled that blanket at, back and that old leathered Middle Eastern face. And tears began to fall down his cheeks. 
as he said, this is the one. It's the son of God. And through those tears, Mary said, and he made a prophecy. And in paraphrase, he said, this one's going to break your heart, Mary. And he will be pierced by a sword. And she said, and in that moment, I did not understand what that man was saying. It was my firstborn. He was a newborn. I wanted this vagrant to get away and to leave us alone. She said, but oh, I remembered that prophecy. As I stood at the foot of the cross. And that sword pierced his heart, but it pierced my heart. It it was my baby. Several times in this story, Luke tells us Mary treasured these things in her heart. And she stored them up. Why else would Luke say that other than to say, Mary told me the story. And this is her vision and her version. She kept these things in her heart and she relied on God and she trusted in God. But the clock was ticking and she was not being vindicated and it wasn't playing out the way that she wanted it to play out. And, and, and for some of you, you think, I don't know what the relevance to all of this is today to me. Go, go back and look at these four things we said about Mary today. And they're all true about you. Maybe not the virgin part, but the perfectly positioned and the favored and the confused. Perfectly positioned. I've told you that over and over and over again. You and I are perfectly positioned by God to be Jesus in somebody's life. Favored Recipients of the grace of God and confused. Tick, tick, tick. We're confused, we're distraught, we're perplexed because God promised something and we still don't have the answer. And our thought process has to be how long God, and, and for some of you it's an unsafe friend or an unsafe family member. And Every time we do the invest and invite thing, you write down these people and, and you're thinking, maybe I shouldn't write them down next time. I'm embarrassed because it's just not playing out. And God says, nothing is impossible with me. And prayer works. If you're a Christ follower, can I just say to you, he has a destiny for you. And it begins with salvation. If you're not a Christ follower today, let me just say, your destiny today is to give your life to Jesus Christ. If you are a Christ follower, he is inviting you to join his plan. The story of Christmas running on into generation after generation after generation. And it doesn't get old. The reason it doesn't get old is because it's the story of redemption running into the lives of those who need to be redeemed. As we begin this Christmas season, let me just challenge you. Don't embrace the shadow of Christmas. 
embrace the substance of Christ this Christmas season. Let's pray again. And can I just ask the question this morning? How many of you in here would say, Pastor, I... uh, I know that I have a relationship with Jesus Christ. I know that I know that I know that He's my Savior. He's the Lord of my life. Would you just raise your hand all across the room and let me see it? Put it down. Thousand plus hands probably. How many of you would say, Pastor, I, I don't know that. I don't know that Jesus is my Lord or my Savior, my forgiver. But I want you to pray for me that I could know that. Would you slip your hand up high all across the room and let me see it? Say, that's me. Pray for me. A couple of hands. Anybody else? Pray for me. And Father, today we pray that today could be the day of salvation. And that you would intervene. And if you want to give your life to Jesus, would you just pray right where you're seated and say, Dear God, I know I'm a sinner. And today I ask you to forgive me for all of my sin. Jesus, come into my life to be my Lord, my Savior, and my forgiver. I turn my back on my sin, and I trust you alone to save me. And I want to thank you, thank you, thank you, Jesus, for saving me. And if you're a believer today, and you'd say, I sense in my heart, and maybe I have for some time, that God has spoken to me. And for me, the, in a very real way, the clock is ticking. And I'm wondering where God is and what God is doing. And you just say, Pastor, I, I just want you to pray for me today. Would you just slip your hand up all across the room and let me see it. And Father, for every hand that was just lifted, I pray for grace, for favor. Father, I pray you'd meet them right where they are. And I pray that you would remind them today in a very real and tangible way you hadn't forgotten about them. And that they're not on the backside of some hill somewhere where you can't find them. That you are fully aware and you are fully on the throne. And you have a divine destiny for them. And in the fullness of time and in the timing of God Almighty, you will bring your promises to fruition. And others of you would say, Pastor, I've got a friend or a family member this year. During Christmas time, I'm praying for them that they would come to know Christ. And you want me to join you in prayer for your friends or your family. Would you just raise your hand and say, that's me. I'm praying this season for somebody in my life they would come to Christ. Would you just slip your hand up all across the room? Lots and lots of hands. And Father, we pray this season that we wouldn't embrace Shopping for shopping's sake. Turkey. But Father, we would embrace Christ. And that we would live lives and we would invest our time in things that will make a difference in eternity during this Christmas season. And I pray for favor with friends and family. And that this Christmas would be salvation for people that we know and people that we love. And today... 
Lord, for all the people who are going to serve in Toys for Tots. Ordinary people doing extraordinary things. Being Jesus with skin on. Ushering people from one kingdom into another kingdom today. Father, would you forgive us when we think that we're just handing out cookies or we're hauling toys around and that's all we're doing. Father, there's nothing ordinary about today. It's extraordinary and it's eternal. And we pray, God, that you would save hundreds and hundreds of people. Men and women and boys and girls. We love you and we praise you. In Jesus' name we pray and together we all say amen and amen.